Ah, yes, friends. On a Tuesday, it's OGP, the one giant podcast, where, of course, we are your host over there. You're going to find Andy Makowitz. Over here, you're going to find Adam Armbrecht. We are healthy, wealthy, and wise, Andy. I've decided, why can't I be a part of the good vibes? Every single time that we come on, every morning, you're always healthy, wealthy, and wise. Why not me? Why not me? You you should be because my whole house is sick right now. So we, we we're passing the health over to you. Like my, my two and a half year old son woke up. He goes, I don't feel good. And as a parent, everyone knows when you hear that in the morning, you're like, just go please, suck it up. Can, you, can we just make it to daycare? Can we just make it to daycare? Get him out the door, make it to daycare. And then everybody's happy. And then we all win. So listen, well, in that case, I guess I am. Look at me. A vision of health. As we dive in, of course, yesterday we were talking about not only the James Bradbury situation, but also compensatory picks, some of the commentary from Brian Dable and Joe Shane on Daniel Jones. It was all good. I hopped on for a live because James Bradbury officially was released. It ultimately uh, came down to Joe Shane and the market and things just not panning out from all the different angles that we basically said before we get in specifically just to what's the most important short-term information. And that is the dead cap for the New York football giants. Um, the, the biggest takeaway in terms of new information was just that there were potential opportunities like with the Houston Texans. However, it was reported about 5 million apart for James Bradbury and the Texans in terms of where he thought his value was, was versus where the Texans were willing to pay for him. Right. Yeah, so it sounds like the Texans wanted to trade for him prior to the draft. There was a potential offer on the table. The Giants and the Texans had agreed on compensation. However, you know, from what, what people are reporting on, on Twitter, it sounds like the Texans wanted to extend Bradbury or restructure the deal, and they were about $5 million apart in terms of wanting to have Bradbury there for a multi-year situation. And so Bradbury, to, you know, looking around saying, what is my market value or what do I perceive my, my free market value to be said, I'm not interested in this because then I have to go to the Texans who are a rebuilding team. I don't get to pick my team and you're dictating what the market is. I'd rather just get outright released and then have the team of my choice at the salary that, that, you know, they're ending up paying me. And you can see the Texans decided to say, okay, we're too far away. They go and draft their, you know, uh, Stingley jr. With the third overall pick that closes the door on that potential trade partner and we're left with James Bradbury and and outright releasing him. Yeah, and ultimately, you know, if you're James Bradbury, the idea of, we, we talked about this, right, really good two years ago, down season this past year. If you think you can still go out and get a contract, you'd rather go somewhere now as a free agent, do a one-year deal, reestablish your market value, and then maybe try to cash in one more time as opposed to end up on a team that you don't think is really going to be ready to compete. That being the case, the biggest implication now, since he, we wish him well, hopefully he doesn't go to a division rival like the Philadelphia Eagles, like the Washington Commanders. Of course, two teams in the division have to be interested in his services. But the bigger piece was what it meant for the Giants in, in the short term and the long term. Joe Shane talked about all offseason. I don't want to take on restructured contracts if I don't have to, right? Did some things with Blake Martinez and with Sterling Shepard. This was the big one because it represented clearing $10 million in cap space, north of $10 million, which was important, obviously, but also taking on a significant dead cap hit. And when we talk about where the Giants currently now stand on this, we'll throw up a graphic over on YouTube here where um, this was reported there over on Twitter yesterday by Giants Daily. When you look at the amount of players that are going to get carried over here north of $32 million in terms of dead cap money on the books for the upcoming season for the Giants, 11.7 for James Bradbury, 11.4 for Logan Ryan, $4 million for Nate Solder, 2.4 for Kyle Rudolph, 
Uh, Logan Ryan for the grievance that could add into that <laughs> would be another 1.2 potentially, along with smaller numbers. These aren't the really important ones. Devontae Booker, Riley Dixon, Sam Beal combined for about one and a half million altogether there. But it's a lot of numbers. And ultimately, this is about the previous regime, big money spent. And unfortunately, even in the moment when it looked like a great player to go get in James Bradbury, you're seeing the, the penalties that you can pay on the back end when you extend a player, restructure a player, or maybe pay a little bit over market value for certain guys that you like, like a Logan Ryan, but ultimately is probably a replaceable piece at a better number. I mean, Adam, there's a bunch of numbers that stick out, but the Logan Ryan one feels like it sticks out more than the James Bradbury one. I feel like we understand the context behind James Bradbury. There was a $20 million plus cap hit. You could save half the money by outright releasing him. Even though he's a good player, you need that money to sign all of your, your draft picks. I totally get it. Logan Ryan was $11.4 million in dead cap for this year. The Giants saved something like four or 500 grand by outright releasing him, I think. If that, it just is a very puzzling situation to say, we're just going to outright cut a guy that may still be able to contribute, and we're just going to eat $11.5 million of dead cap. And it makes you think, the Giants are really saying, we need to rebuild this. This is not a one-year thing. It, it seems like, if they thought that they can compete, Logan Ryan would still be on this roster today. Um, yeah, I, yes. If they thought they could compete, he could be on the roster. And also, unless you think you're compete, like competing, there's there are different definitions, right? Competing for the Giants in the short term can be being in games, being capable of winning games, right? Trying to be around a 500 team as you're working your way through the season. You can do that without Logan Ryan. If you think that Logan Ryan Teams that are already looking at themselves as division winners and playoff contenders, those are the teams that go, oh, Logan Ryan at that number, we can really use him. He's going to bring value to this team. So I don't begrudge any of these. Again, this is the thing that I've said the entire time since Joe Shane was hired, since the new GM and new regime came in. Don't be surprised by anything that gets done. We battered around what they could, should, or would do. But the reality for me was it doesn't matter what your name is. It doesn't matter the amount of money that's attached to you. You are not an automatic based on what normally would be for a previous regime factors that would keep you around, right? If this was still Dave Gettleman, Bradbury's still here. Logan Ryan is still here, right? All of these things would look a lot different, but a new regime just says, I, I know we're already in a hole. So does it matter if I dig a foot deeper when I'm 30 yards down? No. And then by the way, that means that I get myself almost back to the surface immediately next off season. Yeah, the, the one note I'll say about Logan Ryan, and think about this. Think about how much confidence Dave Gettleman had that Logan Ryan was going to be like his starting safety this upcoming season if he was here. Like the way his contract was structured, like $11.5 million in guaranteed money that would go away with only four hundred in cap savings. That's how confident Dave Gettleman was. And it just shows in a, a seismic shift in the strategy behind Joe Shane and what Wink Martindale's defense may need and ultimately – where we want to spend the money for Brian Dable and Mike Kafka's offense. Oh, yeah, 100%, right? And we think about, we know Daniel Jones is on this team. What a great transition from Andy Makowitz. Pro's pro. Um, he is on this roster. And so one of the things that Andy and I bat around is Daniel Jones. What's the long-term future? Listen, as we said with a lot of guys, once you're on the roster, once you're on the team, I'm rooting for you. So as we get towards this year and we get towards rookie mini camp and into training camp, I'm rooting for Daniel Jones to be successful because that means that the Giants are successful. And when we think about what Mike Kafka and Brian Dable are going to bring to the table, you're obviously looking at the Buffalo Bills and you're looking at the Kansas City Chiefs. And 
there's some pretty clear, I think, comps from each roster that we can look into this wide receiving room and then even into the backfield and start to set some expectations around what we want to see happen. The interesting, the first interesting thing for me was, and we'll we'll tie this into what it means for Daniel Jones and how they can use him effectively. But both teams in Kansas City and in Buffalo want to work the intermediate, work the underneath stuff, and then also go for those big hits. We know when you go out and get a player like Stefan Diggs, that's what you're looking to accomplish. When you have a speedster like Tyree Kill, that's what you're trying to accomplish. The interesting thing is, in Kansas City, they work, as we were talking about this pre-show, high to low. They want to blow the top off you early and then open everything up underneath so that they can just pick their, pick their spots, create some spacing that we'll get into here in a second. Whereas for Buffalo, they reverse that engineering and they say, let's set the table low. Let's set it underneath with some of those quick releases, get it out of Josh Allen's hands in a hurry, and then look to set up those big opportunities down the field. When you hear those two versions of an offensive concept, What's your preference for Daniel Jones? Because we'll get into these players here and, and who can be successful and why they can be successful, actually, I think, and why I'm getting pretty confident in what this offense can do. But what would your preference be, right? Do you want to nibble around the edges and then look for the big bite? Or do you want that explosive play right out the gate? Try to hit the home run, knowing how much it can pull back that defense away from the line of scrimmage and set up things for both the passing and running game. So great question. Cause they do have different philosophies, even though they're both explosive offenses for me, I would prefer Brian Dable system for Daniel Jones uh, of short opening up the long. And the reason why, why is uh, has a lot to do with our man, Daniel Jones. And, and the, the idea of Daniel Jones's comp is let's not say he's, Either Patrick Mahomes or Josh Allen, that would be very foolish. If you ask me, Daniel Jones, right? He's, he's, just, Daniel he's Jones. just Daniel Jones. He is his own man. <laughs> just if, I, if I were to ask you, Daniel Jones, the best version of Daniel Jones looks most like whom out of Patrick Mahomes and Josh Allen, I would venture to say that it is more Josh Allen than it is Patrick Mahomes. And the, and uh, I mean, let me get your That's quick thoughts on that. Yeah, that's, you know why? Here's the only reason why it's interesting is because, um, and again, understand the context we're putting this in. We're comparing two systems. We're not comparing Daniel Jones to Pat, Patrick Mahomes or Josh Allen in this moment, you know, specifically. But what's interesting about it is the thing that I think Patrick Mahomes does less of and what Josh Allen does more of is use his legs, right? Be physical as a runner. The thing that I don't think Daniel Jones can do a ton of based on health and the recent sample size we got from him is be a physical runner. <clears throat> So I actually look at it, I might actually look at it a little bit more. Can Daniel Jones be slightly more mobile in, in and around the pocket and rolling out and getting on the run and trying to get that ball downfield, doing something that we haven't seen yet, flick of the wrist kind of throws. But I think conceptually, his running will be more selective, like a Patrick Mahomes, as opposed to Josh Allen, who very much uses it as a part of his arsenal. Yeah, so that's that's a great uh, explanation, Adam, because there is a very um, stark difference. Patrick Mahomes is very athletic. Let's not get any anything twisted here. Josh Allen is extremely athletic as well. They use their athleticism, to your point, in two different ways. Patrick Mahomes and the way that the offense under Mike Kafka, Eric Bieniemy, Andy Reid, that whole entire system that they have there, is they like to take the top off, as you explained, and go deep. And what that does for Patrick Mahomes is it allows him that secondary run where – 
all the players have stretched the field. Nothing is open. The secondary safety cornerback has vacated a portion of the field, and he goes and takes the space that's available to him and scampers out of bounds. I don't believe that the Giants necessarily are taking the top off of anyone yet. I don't know if the offensive line has improved enough to allow that scheme to work yet, which is why I think more the Josh Allen type of scheme fits Daniel Jones a little bit better. I do think Daniel Jones actually has better top line speed than Josh Allen. Small little side note, but I do think that what they do in Buffalo are designed runs that are in the scheme, which with a lot of pre-step motion, which we'll get into in a minute. Yep. And, and you pick and choose your places to get five yards, to get seven yards, to let Daniel Jones's athleticism show through while taking some of those short and intermediate routes that we talked about before. And all of that pre-snap motion, which we'll go into, ends up opening up the top of the field where hopefully a guy like Kadarius Tony or Kenny Galladay can can high point a ball later later on. Yeah, it's interesting, man. Because, and again, like neither one of these are going to be a bad strategy. And ultimately, the Giants will probably do a blend of these things, right? Bring in some different concepts. But I like I, I look at, I go on the, the Kansas City side of it. Like, again, these design runs, in theory, they can work. But it, it's weird because you mentioned the offensive line, right? Are they there yet to give enough time for those deep routes to really develop early on? As you're trying to work, uh, as you're trying to work the passing game, that it's a fair point. The other side of it is, though, these design runs. Well, if you don't think that the that the offensive line is quite there yet, then what happens when it's not quite there yet to set up the block so Daniel Jones doesn't get absolutely blown up on the edge trying to maybe do the design rollout, scoot for five or six, right, slide down, get us in a better second and short, right, a third and short, whatever it may be. So, uh, do I think all these things can be possible? Yes. But I'm very curious because let's just let's let's start to dip our toe into these waters when we talk about how these players can get utilized. Kadarius Tony to me is the Tyreek Hill. Like he is going to be the Tyreek Hill of this offense. He can line up in every single spot on the field, including the backfield. He has the speed to burn players. He has the short area quickness and burst and agility and those jukes, right? The things when we talked about Robinson being drafted saying different, both good. Different types of good, right? Um, I look at Kadarius Tony as being the guy, and I, I pulled up some stats here as the evolution of Andy Reid's offense developed, so too did the usage of Tyreek Hill. I look at Kadarius Tony as being when we walk up to that line of scrimmage, and you can get into the pre-snap motion here a bit, but we're gonna take him, pull him into the slot, and guess what? He's going. And we're going to try to, on a timing, quick three-step drop over the top, right? When you see single high safety coverage, when you see an additional body in the box, well, what the Giants need to be capable of doing underneath Kafka is forcing the issue and going to Kadarius Tony and saying, one-on-one -on -one matchup, that's your ball. Every single time, we need to be able to have that kind of confidence in our wide receivers. And going back to last year, regardless of scheme, you knew that Darius Slayton was incapable of consistently winning one-on-one -on -one matchups, that Kenny Galladay had a hard time getting separation, obviously not a burner, right? And then all of a sudden, it congests everything else. We'll get into some of the other stuff in the intermediate area, but that's the, the phase one of how I see this offense is every single time they get in there, I want somebody burning. I want somebody burning, looking for that shot. And then it's up to Daniel Jones to process those reads and make the right quick decision, understanding how valuable that part of it's going to be too. Yeah. So that's, that's interesting because I haven't necessarily thought I wanted Kadarius Tony to go vertical because I feel like that gives us 
um, less opportunities to get the ball in his hands earlier, where I think he's way more athletic and he can make things happen. So I'm and it's not the know, only I'm, way. It's oh. not the only way, but it has to be one of them. But and just and real quick, because I'll add into it here. Um, but you know what? Go ahead. Go ahead with your thought, because there's a big picture idea around passing attempts from Daniel Jones and how these things break down. Yeah. So I, I mean, I agree. Kadarius Tony might be the be all do all type of guy for for this offense, the way Ty- Tyreek Hill was for the Chiefs. I can understand the comparison. Again, we're not com- we're not saying that Kadarius Tony is Tyreek Hill. We're not saying Daniel Jones is Josh Allen. But but what I think is going to be important is just some of the pre snap motion that I think is going to change. That you're going to see a drastic change from how he did before. The Giants were bottom five in the league in pre snap motion before, and. To, to me, Adam, this is almost nonsensical where it's like it gives you free information before the play even starts to help everyone on your team. And it doesn't really cost you anything to do. And the fact that the Giants didn't implore uh, more pre-snap motion is crazy to me. We know we're going to get more of that because both the Kansas City Chiefs and the Buffalo Bills were top half of the league in pre-snap motion. And you may say and this is why you need the personnel, right? That we talk about just like Darius Slayton, you can't move him anywhere because he's not effective from anywhere else, right? That, that was a big problem. Although you can still look at limited use of Kadarius Tony, Kenny Galladay has been known to line up in a lot of different spots. So still the limitations of the previous coaching staff for sure. Yes. And and I think t- to that point, we, we'll talk about Wandale Robinson. He fits that pre-snap motion very well because he can be very versatile in the ways you could get him the ball, the routes that he can run, especially like gadget plays and turning the edge, jet sweeps, whatever it may be. But Adam, the, the pre-snap motion helps these wide receivers just as much, if not, it helps Daniel Jones even more. And I'll, and I'll explain why. The first thing is this allows Daniel Jones to understand coverages pre-snap. I cannot stress this enough where you send people in motion and seeing the, the how the cornerback or the linebacker or the safety reacts to sending that player in motion tells you if he follows him, they're in man. If they bump over people, you know, across the line, they're in zone and they're playing specific areas of the field, not, not players. That allows Daniel Jones to understand, okay, if we do run a go route, are they just going to hand this off to somebody else, a, a single high safety, and all of a sudden that side of the field is, is still covered short and long? Or if I run a go route, it's going to clear out that entire side of the field, which means I can either run for plays or I can take an underneath route that's curling later. And I think being able to do all that pre-snap stuff only helps Daniel Jones get more information before the snap. Oh, 100%. Now, now, and now this is a part of the offseason process for Daniel Jones is you need to know how to do it. Right. Yes. Like this is one of the things we talk about. The time that he was allowed to be able to process the defense post snap is one thing. The pre snap reading of the defense is just as more important. It's the most important piece. You we talk about, remember, go back to the days of Peyton Manning, right? Literally manipulating the defense into a defensive scheme that benefited what he wanted to accomplish on a given play. Same thing with the best, the best quarterbacks in the league, whether you do it the way Peyton did with all the pre-snap stuff or just Tom Brady stepping up to the line, signaling where things are happening and knowing exactly where you want to go. There's a lot of different ways to get through that process, but you need to be able to step up to the line, read and understand what the defense is setting up to do and then understand what is my job here to put us into the best spot? Who am I pulling in? Is it Kadarius Tony? Is it Wandale Robinson? We'll talk about in a second as well. So that falls on Daniel Jones' shoulders now to learn this system and know how to best utilize it. And go, go ahead before, because no, then I want to talk a little bit uh, more you, about it. You just mentioned Tom Brady, and that's a perfect example. There's, there's more than one way to do these types of things. 
Tom Brady and the Tampa Bay Bucks, I think, had the least pre-snap motion of any team in the NFL. And you may say, well, Andy, you were just saying, why not get the free information? It's like, well, guess what? Tom Brady looks at a defense and is able to diagnose that without having to do any pre-snap motion. He knows. And then you can just trade the route combinations that you want everyone to work. Right, exactly. He has a different style of doing it because he's the best at, ever at what he does. He doesn't need to do all this glitz and glamour to change all these things up. He can look at it very similar to like how Peyton Manning can look at the formation and look at where people are and just say, I know exactly what they're going to do. They're going to do cover two zone. They're going to do this, that. So I know, and I expect already what routes are going to be the right ones. And I will just call it accordingly. So now from that standpoint too, because here's the, a couple other factors, I think as well, it'll be interesting to think about. We've talked about like different personnel combinations. We could see here, whether you're running a three wide receiver set, maybe you're going to go with four, the four wide receiver sets will be really interesting to me and why many, uh, many training camp here for the rookies is going to be interesting. Why training camp in the off season is interesting. Who is that guy, right? Is Darius Slayton still here? Now you have, he's only a clean vertical route, but that can serve a very specific function in this offense. Does someone else, these you know, Robert Fosters of the world, do they have a role? Does Andre Miller, as a lot of Giants fans want to see him have success? Whoever it may be, the ability to move multiple pieces around or line up in different spots also becomes important because again, go back to, I'll, I'll focus on the Kafka side of it. It's not only about, well, maybe we want to go deep to set up the thing short, but then inside of that short game, this isn't, I mean, this is this you know, basic NFL concepts. You want to have someone running the low, the intermediate and the deep routes and creating these pocket levels. One of the things that Kansas city has done so effectively over the years has been attacking the linebackers. And this is where I think we can, we can flex from Kadarius Tony and then into Wandale Robinson, where you start to say, Depending on where Kadarius Tony is lined up, let's and let's I'll use the example that I was speaking to, right? Whatever percentage we think it's going to happen, more and more Tyree Kill was moved into the slot, and then he was very effective against against the man looks when he gets bumped and pressed at the line. That can create a little bit of difficulty. But if Kadarius Tony runs any type of intermediate to deep route, right, the fifteen and beyond kind of routes, and he's taking them up the field though. Now you get the five to seven yard range. This is where Wandell Robinson comes into play. This is where he needs to get into that space and be effective. And then you can look to aging superstar, Kenny Galladay, right? His job is going to be, buddy, you got to feast. You have to feast on the, you know, seven to 15 yard range. That has to be your money space there, because if it's not going to be Kadarius, Tony pulling the, pulling the back end of the defense away from the line of scrimmage. And then Wandell Robinson, begging linebackers to step up closer to the line. All that little space in between. We know what they have at tight end. This is where I think Kenny Galladay, big body, big frame, not a burner. Be a good route runner, be crisp, be, be reliable for Daniel Jones, and you can start to be the chain mover inside of this offense when you talk about some of these more dynamic pieces that are going to be around you. Yeah, I was going to ask you. I mean, you, you were alluding to it, and maybe you were, you were kind of saying it, but do you think that Kenny Galladay may be in, in some motion comes into the slot a little bit and plays a little bit more like Travis Kelsey, where he's looking for seam routes on the inside. He's going to try to pick up seven to 10 yards because Travis Kelsey was the, the security blanket for Patrick Mahomes. You realize by them trading Tyreek Hill, they're basically saying, we definitely know we need Travis Kelsey on the inside because he makes everything that Patrick Mahomes wants to do vertically happen. And so like, could you, it seems like them slightly ignoring the tight end position in free agency and back into the draft with undrafted free agents. You know, we talked about Austin Allen a little bit as a big body type of guy. I could even see Kenny Galladay maybe coming into the slot and, and getting more of those seven to 10 yard possessions to your point and having eight catches for 55, 60 yards, as opposed to the three catches for 90, where he's trying to catch some high pointed ball. 
I, I think that, yeah, 100%. And if you go back in this offseason, I talked about after they hired Dable and we started to look at this offense, I, I threw this out there, right, on one of the episodes. I said, like, the possibility that Kenny Galladay could be looked at a pseudo, a pseudo tight end wide receiver in terms of functionality inside this offense. Because if you're talking about the pre-snap motion, if you're talking about coming to the line of scrimmage where Kadarius Tony, who can line up on the outside, right? If you all of a sudden pull Kenny Galladay in the middle of the field, he can run a hook route, settle down in the middle. He can take a post route, right? Like he has endless combinations that he can work from from there. And then if you want to go the layer deeper, it's the funny thing is on the on the Buffalo side of it, Dable side of it, well, they only had really one one true tight end that mattered in their offensive system, and he wasn't really the most important piece. Now, Kansas City, tight end mattered a lot, also because it was Travis Kelsey, right? Like, there's a reason why that tight end mattered more for them. But if Kenny Galladay can come inside in these formations and take the defense away, now speed and quickness underneath between Wandale Robinson and Kadarius Toney, now you're hopefully wreaking havoc when you get the right looks and you have this terrible disaster defensively of saying, linebackers, quick grab these two shifty speedy wide receivers in these underneath and intermediate routes. So, I mean, that's just, yeah, that's the wide receiver core side of it, let alone we haven't even gotten into what I think the running game should look like for this team. Okay. Before we get into the running game, I have sure. a, I have a question for you that it's been burning in the back of my mind because I look at all these different stats and I'm like, this is unbelievable. So the giants were top 10 in percentage of pass plays this past year. So they threw the ball more than a third of the league. Yeah. And they had far and away the worst success rate at 39% and the worst yards per attempt of any team in the league at 5.9. Do you feel like that is like, what do you think is the biggest cause of that? Was it the scheme? Was it the offensive line was terrible? Was it Daniel Jones isn't getting the ball out fast enough? Was it, we had no run game to speak of. So we didn't open anything up there. Clearly, that is the thing that has to change most is how we can't get 5.9 yards per attempt on a pass play in the NFL. You can't do it when other teams are getting eight, almost oh, nine man. yards. You can't have teams getting 50% more on every pass play than you are. It just doesn't happen in this league. So if I had to, if you had to pin down what you think it was, which thing, you know, was it that was the biggest factor in all this? And how is that going to change under, you know, the new regime? Predictability. Right. What we talk about all last year with with Jason Garrett. Right. It was even even the gadget, quote unquote, gadget plays. You were like, oh, it's a gadget play on a bubble screen to the left side. Right. Like and we talked about this for years now with the Giants just in general. They don't look like they have innovated with the modern NFL. That's the difference here. And I like and Dable brings his own element to it, which I really enjoy. But again, I, I think when we think about Kansas City. That's the team that you just think about, man, when they have these weapons in place, all of a sudden they are dynamic in so many different versions of it. So yeah, the short routes are great and the quick release from Daniel Jones is great, but not if the defense is kind of playing a bubble zone look and just saying like, yeah, whip it out there for five yards. We have four bodies to go get Sterling Shepard, right? Listen, we love Sterling Shepard. He, he clearly has injury concerns over the course of his career, but you know what helps compound injury concerns? is when you're getting your butt kicked so consistently, right? In the very brief time we saw him last year, it was, hey, man, this guy's ready. He looks dynamic. He looks quick. He's getting open. But when multiple bodies are beating him down after down after down, the wear and tear of that, and by the way, we talked about this with Justin Pennick too, right? It was, so you're, you're beating up your players a little bit. And then if every drive you need, listen, long drives are great, right? Sustained drives are awesome. But if you have to show off 15 to 20 of your best plays over the first two drives of a game, 
where are you by the time the second half comes around, right? I don't anticipate that being the case at all when it comes to Kafka and Dable. They're going to have, again, with this personnel, buddy, we got 15 versions of best plays for Kadarius Tony and for Wandell Robinson and for Kenny Galladay, let alone Saquon Barkley, right? Like, they're going to have the ability, we assume, to say, we have four different versions to poison you on this particular setup. And the Giants didn't have that last year. They were desperate to try to keep Daniel Jones upright, get the ball out of his hands, and hope for success after the catch. Something that they can scheme a lot better this year, obviously. So, Adam, you wanted to talk about the the run game, and I think that is important. That, that could be the, kind of the last topic that we'll touch here very quickly. What I find fascinating is the Giants were a, ter- a terrible team last year that threw the ball quite a bit, whereas both Kansas City and Buffalo were really great teams that ha- that struggled to run the ball. Their run percentage was bottom half in the league. Kansas City was bottom five in run percentage. They are basically like, we don't have a run game. Let's just give it to Mahomes, and he'll figure out everything that's going to happen. I'm curious to think, is that a philosophical thing between Dayball and, and Reed and Kafka in terms of not utilizing the running game? And then it just kind of is there and goes by the wayside. Or do you think that they had personnel challenges that maybe the giants don't necessarily have with Saquon Barkley? It's the interesting thing, right? Cause even over in Kansas city as well, put them all together, look at their running back rooms, right? Uh, you know, Clyde Edwards, Hilaire goes down and then it's, and then it's Williams who steps up and go look at his stats, right? Almost 50 receptions out of the backfield. So, the running, the running back room is as much a receiver group as it is a running back group. Likewise in Buffalo, they took mid-round players, right? They didn't spend high, high draft capital. So there's functionality, but you're not necessarily looking to unlock things in the same way that you could if you have, arguably, Saquon Barkley, the best running back out of those three teams. When we talk about talent level, he's the best running back amongst, the, amongst Buffalo, Kansas City, and New York. Do I think that it opens up the opportunity to make him as, as much of a focal point and more so than you saw in these other two systems. Yes, because he's more dynamic, right? But I don't know if it's specific to the run game. Like I mentioned those almost 50 receptions for Williams. Like I expect the first thing that I expect to see most of from Saquon Barkley this year is the pass catching. I expect back to rookie campaign, 90 plus receptions, right? Like I think that that's where his feast is going to start. And then the home run hitting in the run game is what you're looking for for him. It's also why you have Matt Breed, another pass catching back out of the backfield, right? So the combination of those players and those skill sets, let alone Corbin, who I think can be in, in the backfield doing some of that stuff. Um, that's the real opportunity here for the Giants to have dynamic success. And it, it's all predicated on what happens up front. And again, it's predicated on Daniel Jones. When he walks up to that line and it's all set up for a big passing play opportunity, but he reads the defense and he goes, you know what? Draw play to Saquon Barkley, right? Right up the gut. Watch him get through on a weak linebacking set there. Or quick swing pass out of the backfield, right? Daniel Jones is going to have all the tools and all of the information underneath Kafka and Dable. It's his choice, his mental makeup from a football standpoint that is going to dictate the level of success that he can have. Understanding it's not perfect. The offensive line isn't totally solved, but your bookends are there. It's the best offensive line you're going to have your entire career so far. You need to be able to utilize all of these weapons. And we're going to keep fleshing this out as we work our way through this offseason. But uh, at, at the end of the day, at, Adam, to what you just said, at the end of the day, picture this week one, a revamp offensive line. We have a three wide receiver set, Saquon Barkley in the backfield. The Giants pre snap motion and they send. Barkley out next to the wide receivers. And all of a sudden you have a combination of Kenny Galladay on one side, 
Wandale Robinson, Kadarius Tony, and Saquon Barkley on the other giving pre-snap motion to defenses, that has to be scary to figure out where the ball goes because if you're a half a second behind any of those players, they can burn you for a touchdown. And that's what makes me excited about getting more creative and giving more pre-snap motion because the empty backfield, especially with an athletic quarterback like Daniel Jones, is going to be in play for this offense under Dable or Kafka, however they want to run it. Yeah, listen, I'll harken back to it. We all know the memory. Odell Beckham Jr. down the sideline to Saquon Barkley for the big touchdown pass, right? Like you can, you mentioned Barkley coming out of the backfield. What if it's a end around little flip pass to Kadarius Tony, who then hooks up with Saquon Barkley right across the flat, down the sideline, et cetera. Again, dynamic playmakers. Like this is why you should be optimistic around this offense and what it's capable of doing. And again, confirmation. We said this last episode, we're going to say this all off season. We want to be, confident and believe in Daniel Jones. He needs to show it over the course of this offseason that he can accomplish what's needed of him inside this system because that's that's the engine. It's all going to be Daniel Jones under center, out of the shotgun, reading these defenses and using, we just laid it out, man. We didn't even really get into as much Wondell Robinson as possible. We'll come back in next week and talk about volume from Daniel Jones and what it can look like in terms of dispersing his pass attempts across this offensive system. We're going to come back in. We're going to talk about the defensive side underneath Wink Martindale. A lot more questions, I think, on that side of the ball right now, at least coming into the season. But it be really fun to break that down as well. You get us over on YouTube. You follow the podcast wherever you get those needs fulfilled. You remember that we'll be in Thursday night doing the live schedule release coverage with Pessimistic Mike. That's going to be a good one. And Minicamp, of course, kicking off on Friday. Until then, though, friends, as Andy Makowitz would want, need, And nay, demand the people know. As always, let's go Big Blue. 